It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yuta Kurtzer, president of Shalom Hartman Institute North America. And I'm really excited to have as our guest this week, Congressman-elect Jamal Bowman, one of the most surprising political stories of the year 2020, a really important conversant for the Jewish community, which is the audience of this podcast, both in light of the individual he defeated, Elliot Engel, and is replacing in Congress in light of his constituency, which includes a significant percentage of Jewish voters, and for a whole host of other reasons we'll discuss today. Before I introduce the congressman-elect, just two disclaimers. We don't usually have politicians or elected officials on this show, so I should make clear that the Hartman Institute is nonpartisan. No endorsements are made or implied. And also, I am not only the host of this show, I am a constituent of Bronx 15. So this is personal and really exciting. So Congressman-elect, I know you must be insanely busy. I saw some pictures on social media of your, what was it called? The Orientation. Orientation. Thank you. So thank you for coming on the show today. Of course, uh, just one point of clarification. I am the congressman-elect for New York 16. Is that 16. what you meant to say? That's what I meant to say, yeah. I do vote in the correct district. So first of all, tell us a little bit about your motivations to enter political life. I know you came in as an outsider to this race. You challenged a long-tenured congressman, which is a really bold thing to do. What drove that decision to kind of take up this mantle of public leadership right now? Yeah, so good morning. Thank you so much for having me. I guess... I was indirectly involved in political life through my work in education over the last 20 years. You know, teacher salaries and pensions are funded by taxpayer dollars. So what happens in the political arena directly impacts what happens in our schools. And, you know, I work as an elementary school teacher, a high school counselor and a middle school principal. And I was consistently fighting for more funding for our public schools, more resources, always wondered why places like Scarsdale and Bronxville had more resources for their kids than we had for our kids in the Bronx. I knew that a lot of the practices like, um, you know, annual standardized testing were harmful to kids. We had more cops in our schools than counselors. So it was a lot happening in our schools that led to me questioning sort of what was going on in our political arena. And I just thought it was unfair and I thought it was unacceptable. And I learned very quickly, you know, if you're black or Latino or poor, you just have less resources, not just for schools, but for your community. And I felt we can do more, you know, in our political arena to really center our children, center those who are most vulnerable. And that's what led to me, you know, exploring a potential run. It's actually quite poignant in the middle of this pandemic for someone to be coming out of the public education system, one of the institutions most affected by this crisis. And we have such a screwed up relationship with people we call essential workers and who we actually value. So to come out of that kind of line of work and to pursue this kind of public leadership is pretty extraordinary. I mean, it must have been, I don't want to say this in the wrong way, but like 
Elliot Engel, tenured for a long time in this district, was winning his primaries and obviously in the general for an overwhelmingly Democratic district won easily. I suspect a lot of people probably discouraged you from going straight there. So it's not just what made you want to be involved with political life. What made you think you could actually win? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, my school, the school that I founded is actually located in the district, in the northeast corridor of the district. So I had 10 years of experience working directly with people who were most impacted by bad policy that came from Washington during Congressman Ingle's tenure. And it was not just about Congressman Ingle and who he was as an individual. It's about him being a part of a system that continued to disenfranchise and marginalize black and brown communities. I mean, policy that goes back way before Ingle, like, sure. like redlining and the GI Bill and the Homestead Act and other policies that just centered growing white wealth in the white community and, and didn't do the same for black and brown communities. So I knew I had good roots in the district uh, as an educator, also living in Yonkers for a number of years. I had good roots there. And while I may have been unknown in the political arena, quote unquote, I was an organizer. You know, I was a, a major contributor to the opt-out movement in public education, fighting for culturally responsive curriculum, restorative justice, trauma-informed schools, fighting for equitable funding with the Alliance for Quality Education. So I was known in, in those yeah. circles pretty well. So I got a lot of support actually initially to run, not from the quote unquote establishment, right. but from the grassroots organizations. Got it. So this is like many congressional districts are super complicated one, you know, Fieldston is one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in New York City. That's not true. If you go a mile to pretty much any direction except West. Before we get to other features of diversity and identities, how do you imagine the work of representing such a diverse constituency, especially when your starting point is, I got a whole bunch of people in my district who have been left behind by the representation until now, but it's not like I'm gonna trade this population for that population. How do you actually imagine that kind of representation? I've always felt from the outside that wealthy people don't like inequality either. <laughs> and they know it's unfair that there are certain communities that continue to suffer and continue to struggle. And if those wealthy communities were given the opportunity to help and support and engage and have those conversations that they would. So I've always felt that in my heart. And what I've learned throughout my campaign is that that's actually true. You know, whether I'm speaking to people in Philston or Riverdale or Bronxville or Scarsdale, people are like, hey, Jamal, let us know how we can help. So people are ready to lean in, ready to be supportive and ready to help. But they also care about a lot of the issues that, you know, the people in the Northeast Bronx care about. They want their schools to remain exemplary. They care about climate justice. They care about police reform. They know that it's screwed up that George Floyd was lynched in broad daylight in front of everyone and that COVID has disproportionately killed poor black and brown people and that mass incarceration continues to persist. And they, people know things are screwed up. They just wanted and needed a pathway to plug in to be more helpful. And I hope that I could be that bridge, that conduit, that liaison between one community and another. And yes, it's very true that I have to spend maybe a little bit more of my time in certain areas of the district, because guess what? You know, a cop killed someone in New Rochelle a year ago, and we have to respond to that. 
cop killed someone and killed another cop through friendly fire in Eden Wall projects, and we have to respond to that. COVID is ravaging, and the irony of COVID is it hit the Jewish community in New Rochelle and Riverdale early and very aggressively. You know, SARS shut down before the state shut down, but then it also hit Co-op City and Eden Wall in the Northeast Bronx, and it continues to hit those areas hard. So there's common ground and there's common interests. And my job is to bridge those gaps and remind everyone that we're working together for the betterment of all of us. Yeah, the COVID metaphor is so profound because I have a kid at SAR. And so our family was like in it right away. But we had, you know, on a personal level, on a communal level, not only the resources to get through it in a particular way, but the school, for instance, was able to raise millions of dollars over the summer to fix the HVAC to redesign the school, and they've been open continuously since the beginning of the year. So to watch a disease that in and of itself doesn't discriminate, to watch it play out with totally different manifestations for this community and this community less than a mile from each other is just devastating. However, I'll say, I think there's always a calculus of like, what am I going to gain and what am I going to lose? And so there is a certain amount of fear for communities that are affluent or are organized in particular ways of does the change in our representation, does the change in our values mean that I have to lose? Part of what we have to get to is how do we get to a place where, as you said, folks who are well off view structural justice and structural change as not just a thing that they care about and they think is good, but is also in a deep way in their own interest. Yeah, that's a very valid point. And I know it's a concern of many throughout the community. I've never looked at it as robbing from Peter to pay Paul. I've never looked at it as, okay, in order for us to invest in Edenwall, we have to take a little bit away from Fieldston. I've never looked at it that way. Yes, people like Jeff Bezos and others need to contribute their fair share to our democracy. Right now, that is not happening. Large corporations like Amazon need to be held accountable for hiding billions of dollars in offshore accounts and not contributing to our democracy. Yes, our tax system needs to be a lot more progressive, especially at the very top. That does have to happen. However, the federal government, and this is one of the reasons why I ran for Congress versus you know a city or state position, can authorize spending in an area of X to jumpstart an economy. The problem is historically they haven't done that with the black community. <laughs> you know, they haven't authorized that spending, but they've authorized it for the white community. You know, the Homestead Act after slavery gave millions of acres of land to the white community and the black community never received their 40 acres in a mule. To quote Dr. King, it was freedom and famine at the same time. And, you know, the GI Bill, you know, after World War II and in response to the Great Depression with the New Deal, we invested $130 billion over 30 years to create the suburbs and grow the white middle class. 98% of those loans went to the white community and African-Americans were kept out, which created communities of concentrated poverty, which we see in Eden Wall and, and Yonkers and in other areas. So yes, there needs to be additional contribution from the wealthy, but also our federal government needs to acknowledge the historical harms of racism, how they continue to persist, and authorize spending as a result of that acknowledgement. 
Great. So I'll come back to race in a little bit, but I'd love to talk a little bit about the conversation that started with the Jewish community during the primary campaign. It was heated, but I got to say, I was really happy on a personal level that it didn't get heated to a place that could have created real damage either within the Jewish community or between the Jewish community and the black community broadly construed. There was a powerful moment where there was an exchange of letters or articles first written by Rabbi Avi Weiss. I was really amazed not only that you chose to engage Rabbi Weiss in public, but by the tenor and the civility of that conversation. I don't know that Rabbi Weiss ultimately, Rabbi Weiss is the rabbi of Hebrew Institute in Riverdale, leading rabbi in the community, also a a longtime social justice advocate on a whole bunch of causes. I'm not sure Rabbi Weiss ultimately voted for you, but it almost didn't matter because the conversation actually put on the table in a serious way what certain members of the Jewish community's concerns were about losing Engel in Congress and his role in the Foreign Affairs Committee and getting any newcomer, but certainly a newcomer who didn't necessarily have the bona fides on issues like Israel, which they cared about. Tell us a little bit of how that exchange came about, what motivated you to respond and to respond the way that you did. Yeah, I was happy with the open letter from Rabbi Weiss because it gave me an opportunity to respond very publicly to maybe a part of the community that didn't have a chance to meet me in person or engage with me beyond maybe a quote they read somewhere or an interview they saw me conduct on a particular outlet. So it gave me the opportunity to respond very publicly. What I wanted to convey was an empathy and a compassion and an understanding of the plight and the fears of the Jewish community being a Black man in America. I mean, that's something that I felt throughout my entire life, like an existential threat from the establishment, from the system, from others, simply because of who you are. And I also wanted to draw the line between not just the Jewish community and the Black community, but the Palestinian community as well. How there's a fear, there's a distrust, there's a worry in terms of losing our homeland and and our humanity, you know, as we go through engaging with each other. So I felt it was an opportunity to respond with that level of empathy and compassion and to hopefully draw parallels and connections between our three communities in a way that can continue a conversation that gets us to a place of peace and justice for all people, regardless of background, because I truly believe that that's where we can go. We just have to figure out how to get there despite a horrid history. You know, and I'm a black man in America. I can't ignore or or disown or seek to harm white people on my path to justice and freedom and equality. We have to live together and work together and figure out what that looks like. And I'm very thankful that from the very beginning of our campaign, there were members of the Jewish community that opened themselves up to me as resources, as mentors to help me learn about Jewish issues generally, and the issue of Israel very specifically. And what I learned is there's diversity in the Jewish community, like there is in every community. And that was very helpful towards my understanding, but also just affirming what I believed in the beginning, which is this is about humanity, and this is about human rights. And we need to uplift the human rights of everyone and figure out how to live in the world together in love and compassion. Do you think it worked? Do you think that there were sectors of the Jewish community that were either really pro-Angle because of his Israel politics, or at least just 
proud of the fact that they had a representative in Washington who was the chair of foreign affairs. They had more access to power. Do you think that they were able to hear that message through that open letter? And do you think that it creates an opening for you now to keep building those relationships? I think it moved the ball forward where people are open to different conversations and to engaging me in those conversations. You know, I was very moved throughout the campaign as I met different segments and individuals uh, of the Jewish community. I met one person, a mom who happened to be in Rye on this particular day with her daughter. And we had a nice conversation and she said, you know, I already voted for you, but I wanted to know your position on BDS. And that was pretty moving because I'm like, wow, she actually mm -hmm. voted for me without knowing what my position on BDS was. And then I reaffirmed that it's not a movement that I support. And I explained to her why, but that touched me because it was like, okay, and this is what I learned. The Jewish community cares about a lot of things in That's addition right. to Israel. Israel is very important, but they care about housing and jobs and healthcare and education and family and community and all of the things that really led to me running for office in the first place. So I was happy that who I am was continuously communicated throughout the campaign, despite people knowing all the details of every policy position that I support. Yeah, every study that's ever been done of the Jewish community voting patterns indicates that even to the portion of the electorate that cares deeply about Israel, it is one of a set of issues that they care about. There's a very, very few people in the Jewish community for whom Israel is the principal issue on which they vote. So your example is very honest by a voter to say that. I already voted for you, but can you tell me this? But it's probably not that uncommon that people are making their decision on a whole bunch of issues, but they do want to get clarification. I think the thing that I'll tell you personally frightened me a little bit is that you indicated, as you've seen, as you're experiencing, the divisions within the Jewish community. Our community in America is undergoing unbelievable change over the last two generations in terms of the identity of American Jews, the ideologies of American Jews, and a lot of those debates are taking place more in public than they might have a couple of generations ago. And I noticed throughout the campaign you had the support of a lot of Jewish activism on the left that was really excited to get behind your campaign. I think really excited personally to be anti-Angle for all of their own reasons. And the thing that sometimes makes me a little nervous, I, I apologize if it sounds a little paternalistic, is that sometimes politicians kind of get baited into an internal conflict that is taking place within the Jewish community, that they are trying to kind of air their grievances with the mainstream Jewish community and using certain politicians as their credibility vehicle. Like, now I got my Jews. But it doesn't necessarily benefit politicians who need to represent a diverse constituency. So I'm curious how you navigate that, or you just like say, you know what, I'll take the support from wherever I can get it. <laughs> you know, that's a great question and great framing it. And thank you for naming it. You know, I've never felt baited to take one side versus another within some of those conflicts. I've just stayed rooted in my values and the values of human rights, no matter what, and in the things that my mother taught me. I also know that growing up in certain communities, it's like, that's their beef. They got to work that out. I'm not yeah. getting involved in that fight because like, I don't want people outside of the African-American community to speak about what African-Americans should do right. either, right? So it's that kind of thing. Some of it is I can offer my experiences, my perspective as a black man in this space 
but I am also not Jewish and I'm very clear on that. And I know there are conversations in the Jewish community that are going to happen that should happen amongst the Jewish community. So I've never felt like pulled in in a way where I need to take one side over another. I am a progressive. I am liberal. I am more of a human rights advocate than anything else. So I used to say throughout the campaign, like I feel sometimes hypocritical speaking about Israel and I've never been there. You know, I just read about it and had conversations about it. So I'll add an opinion if I'm asked, but I try not to wade into waters that may be a little bit too deep for me as someone who's not a part of the community. Hi, my name is Rob France, and I'm the director of campus initiatives at the Shalom Hartman Institute. The pandemic has had a drastic impact on the Jewish world. But beyond Zoom services and communal COVID-19 protocols, reactions to the pandemic have once again highlighted a mainstay of contemporary Jewish life. The Jews of both Israel and North America face serious questions in sharing a sense of Jewish identity. So, from January 3rd to the 8th, we will be hosting a free program just for college students, the iEngage Winter Summit. In Peoplehood in 2021, Pandemic and Polarization, we will address the many challenges and opportunities facing Jewish college students today. To find out more and to register, go to wintersummit.hartman.org.il. It's interesting that the Palestinian cause is viewed as being so central to this progressive turn in America. And it seems to me as an outsider, like I get why the Palestinian cause is really important to Congresswoman Tlaib. She's Palestinian. I don't begrudge her her politics. It just seems like it's such a different issue for a person like you, that the stakes of that issue or that concern seem so different than the stakes on policing and housing and climate and race and economic justice and all of those things. So I guess, why do you think that the Palestinian cause is considered one of the pillars of the progressive movement. And do you think you're going to be able to continue to navigate that piece of, I'll stay in the shallow water on this and focused elsewhere, especially when you have to make alliances? You know, there was language of you being kind of connected to the squad, quote unquote, congresswoman for whom this is a major issue. Why do you think it's so important? And do you think there's a way to maintain that kind of arm's length on this issue? Well, it's important in this district in particular because of the large Jewish constituency in this district and the large constituency that cares about Israel. If we're talking about Israel, we have to talk about Palestine, right? If we're talking about Jews in Israel, we have to talk about the Palestinians in Israel as well. And we have to talk about annexation and occupation and the behavior of Benjamin Netanyahu if the progressive cause is rooted in human rights, which I think it is. And, you know, a threat to anyone's human rights is a threat to everyone's human rights. And one of the things I would say often throughout the campaign is, if we're really serious about the long-term safety and security of Israel, we have to uplift the human rights of the Palestinian people. And we have to do better than we're currently doing with regard to that issue. So that's what I feel. That's what I believe. I think that's why You know, you can't talk about one without the other. Some groups try to do that, and I think that's wrong. I think it's ignoring the power dynamic, and it's ignoring some of what's happening right in front of our face. And whether it's Palestinians, Jewish people, African-American people, the LGBT community, women, the poor, the indigenous, the Latinx, if oppression is happening anywhere, or the perception of oppression is something that we have to deal with, especially as the United States of America, which claims to be the most powerful nation in the world. If we are the most powerful nation, we have a responsibility to respond to potential human rights violations that are happening anywhere in the world. That's my take. 
From a policy standpoint, one of the particular policy issues that's emerging among the progressive camp is the argument to condition aid to Israel. America has done historically billions of dollars of foreign aid, principally through military contracts to Israel, especially since the peace treaties of the late 70s with Egypt. I would love to hear you talk more about this. I'll just put my own cards on the table. I am a pro-peace process. It's not an ideological thing in that sense. I guess what I have never understood and certainly not agreed with from a policy standpoint is that aid to Israel and to the Arab world has always been used as an incentive to amortize risk. You know, okay, Israel, you're about to give back a huge portion of your land conquered in war to Egypt. You're opening up a huge border. We want you to take that risk. We're going to make sure you have the military advantage that you'll never wind up with an Egyptian invasion, and it has worked. Even the last couple of years, the UAE deal, it's very clearly like, we're going to make it worth your while. We're going to use money and military technology to make it worth a while to create these deals, as imperfect as they are. But the argument to condition aid seems to reverse this. Instead of using carrots, it's using a stick. It's saying, we're going to create potential damage to your sense of security. And there's no history that threatening people in the region in order to get them to take risk will ever work. So why change this up? Do the Palestinians even want this? Do they want Israel to have less military aid? I'm just not convinced of it. So what's the logic between the conditioning aid argument? Yeah, you know, if we are serious about a two-state solution and serious about a Palestinian state and investing there and building that up and uplifting that, we can never get there if Netanyahu continues to do what he's currently doing. And I think the conversation of conditioning aid is one of many strategies that have been discussed to dissuade him from doing that and dissuading this sort of far-right ideology that leads to sort of the occupation and annexation to continue. So that's where I think the conversation is coming from. Okay, we've been saying for several decades we want a two-state solution. We are no closer today than we were several decades ago, arguably, and Netanyahu's making it worse. What can we do? So I think that's where the idea of conditioning aid has entered the conversation, because maybe it's only through that method that Netanyahu was stopped. There are probably other methods that need to be explored, but that's one that I've heard and even shared that I may potentially support to stop what's happening in terms of the undermining of a true two-state solution. But it's complicated, man. You know, you mentioned the UAE, you mentioned Egypt, you know, the Middle East has been, ever since I've been alive, there's been conflict. I've heard from the outside a lot of lip service around how to solve that conflict and we're no closer, it seems, to solving that conflict than we were before, especially with Trump pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal, the mm -hmm. recent assassination of the Iran nuclear scientists. I mean, the conflict continues. <laughs> and yeah. the question is, how do we get to peace? And I'm open to any dialogue that will get us there, even though I don't think I'm going to be on the Foreign Affairs Committee. And <laughs> it may not even be my issue. The fact that I represent a large Jewish population, it always comes up. Yeah, I guess my personal view on this is I would love to see a push from the Progressive Caucus 
on Israel-Palestine that sounds more like when you talk about how do we open up more resources from the federal government and equalize the resources from the federal government to solve this problem, as opposed to the kind of withholding resources strategy. In other words, what would a major investment in foreign affairs in Palestinian civil infrastructure look like, which has never been done? What's a much more significant investment in resources where you say to Israel, listen, we want you to take risks on the border. We want you to improve border crossings. Here, we're going to make it possible through you with the best military technology you don't even have yet. In other words, more funding towards this issue as opposed to less. No, you're right, right? So authorize the investment in the spending toward establishing a, a true Palestinian state where they can have safety and security and self-determination as well. And the messenger there is going to be key. The messenger, in my opinion, I think... Joe Biden is a better messenger and person to facilitate that than Donald Trump and who he was working with. So, so yeah, to be continued. To be continued. Last question, but it's a big one. You alluded before, we were talking a little bit about diversity within the Jewish community, obviously diversity within the Black community, the African-American community. There are Black Jews, obviously, so these aren't perfectly misaligned communities, so to speak. They're not opposite to each other. But there's a lot of stuff percolating, whether it was this primary this summer Reverend Warnick campaign in Georgia right now, we've been overdue for a serious re-examination of how do we build ties between the Black community and the Jewish community. A lot of what passes for this conversation in the Jewish community is nostalgia. Jewish community remembers its role positively in the civil rights era. I'm not sure the Black community remembers it as nostalgically, but also there may be a little bit of, well, that's fine, but what have you done for me lately? There's oftentimes a lot of invisibility in the Jewish community about our role in the racial justice story. I'm very sensitive to the fact that living in Riverdale, the school that I send my kids to exists in Riverdale because the Jewish community moved out of the Grand Concourse in the 50s and 60s and moved to Riverdale. So it was part of white flight and part of effectively de facto segregation to build this powerful Jewish school. What's the next step to move this forward? What do we need to do as a Jewish community to engage much more seriously and rigorously in relationship building in the black community and in the actual work? Relationship building is only as good as the goals that you're trying to create out of those relationships. What do we need to do in the Jewish community to move this agenda forward? Yeah, it's a great question. First of all, SAR is a great school, by the way. I had a chance to visit the elementary school and just the design itself, I was like, man, we need schools like this all over the country. So great school, great design. Um, You know, so it's not the responsibility of the Jewish community or any other community to decide to help the Black community or to help any historically oppressed community. That decision is sort of an individual decision, a group decision. And if the Jewish community, quote unquote, would like to be a part of that, absolutely, like we welcome that. What I've learned also throughout the campaign is to be Jewish is to be someone who cares about social justice in all its forms. And I appreciate and love that and know that many African-Americans who identify as being followers of Christ or even Muslim or other, also care about social justice as well. So for me, regardless of what community you are a part of, if you care about social justice, you also care about racial justice. And if you care about justice, you care about equality and you care about the human rights of everyone. So how do we come together as people who care about human rights and social justice to fight for social justice in all its forms and center in America's institution 
is the legacy of racism in our country and the legacy of slavery. And I'm mentioning slavery not because I wanna live in the past and have America respond to what happened in the past, but what's happened to black people in America is a continuation of that legacy that has evolved to include wealth inequality, mass incarceration, police brutality, and missing education, very explicitly. And when we look at housing infrastructure, when we look at health outcomes, all of this is rooted in our beginning as a country that enslaved African people, but continued through policy to marginalize, oppress, suppress, and terrorize African American communities through slavery by another name. So because of that legacy, we welcome and we would love uh, all communities to be a part of pushing back against that legacy that continues to harm us. And one of the things that I've been talking a lot about is reparations. The need for it, the need for a process of truth, reconciliation and restitution, and telling the story of other groups that received reparations and were a part of a process of truth and reconciliation. And one of the main groups is the Jewish community, both here as American Jews, but also in Germany, right? So borrowing from what we've done here for Japanese Americans and Jewish Americans, borrowing from what happened in Germany as part of, you know, reparations there and truth and reconciliation there, borrowing from Rwanda, borrowing from South Africa, we need the process to happen here for African-Americans in order for us to reach the ideals of our democracy for everyone. So I would love for the Jewish community to get behind that and support that. That's a big one, but that's the one I think we ultimately need so we never have a Donald Trump again and we never have people who support initiatives like QAnon running for office and winning and becoming representatives in our Congress. Yeah, I appreciate it. I especially like the frame of it's not your job to help me. It's not my job to help you. But we're human beings that care about social justice and human rights. But I would add one other thing, which is we also care about America. And it's so powerful to see in the history. I read this in a piece by Yoni Applebaum in The Atlantic. It was a piece, I think, called How America Ends. <laughs> But he says the most effective voices of social change in our country's history have been people who have appealed to the vision of what America is supposed to be. Because when you do that, you triangulate. It's like, we all want that. How do we remind ourselves that we're a country that, even if it never actually was built on equality and justice, thought about itself as committed to equality and justice and set that as its North Star? And in that vein, it doesn't mean that race is irrelevant. It's contextually really important for the Jewish community, black community, for people between those communities to understand the context in which it's situated. But we do need a bigger North Star of the America that we're trying to build together. Yeah, thank you for saying that. And democracy, right? Like the idea that every voice matters, every individual and community matters, and making sure that each voice is as valuable as the next voice. And the ideas that sustain a healthy democracy has to include everyone. That's where we're trying to go. And as we talk about reparations, we're talking about finally healing, healing as a nation for all of us so we can move forward in a way where we can continue to fight for democracy. I really admire your willingness to throw yourself into the fray throughout your career and to be doing the work that you're doing. Hopefully, Congressman-elect, after this pandemic passes, 
we'll invite you over to our house for a Shabbat dinner. You can consider it constituent services, but we'll actually have a good time continuing to talk. So my thanks to Congressman-elect Jamal Bowman for coming on Identity Crisis this week, and thanks to all of you for listening to our show. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute in partnership with the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. It was produced this week by David Kalman, Alex Dillon, and Tali Cohen, and edited by Alex Dillon with music provided by SoCalled. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute and to support our work, you can visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We'd love to know what you think about the show. You can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people find it. And you can write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, Audible, and everywhere else podcasts are available. This will be our last episode of the year. We're taking a little break next week, and we'll be back in January. Happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, whatever holidays you're celebrating. See you then, and thanks for listening. Thank you.